I'm going to continue my series that's entitled, There's an App for That. This morning, I'm going to be talking about freedom from fear. My text is 2 Timothy chapter 1. I'm going to get there here in a moment. But this morning, when I mention the word fear, I'm not referring to fear or doubt that cause us to become uh, uh, skeptical or, or hesitant. Uh, uh, let me give you uh, uh, an example. I, I'm not talking about rational fear. I, I'm not talking about things that, you know, uh, protect us from harm. Uh, like, you know, which one of us would like to climb the principal building and put on a bungee cord uh, with, without a safety harness and not have a safety net down be, below us? That, anybody t- anyone want to be a taker? You know, just climbing up and getting on the pinnacle of that building is somewhat tempting God. Would you, would you agree with that? So I, I'm not talking about rational type of thinking or even biblical type of thinking. I, I'm talking about Fear that paralyzes people, fear that actually has a tormenting aspect to it. And scripture has a lot to say about this subject matter, and God wants us to be free from those types of fears. Fears that hinder us, fears that hold us back, fears that, that cause us to have doubts in, in, in very unhealthy ways to, to where we won't take steps, uh, we won't step out in faith, and so that's, that's what I'm referring to this morning. So Paul is writing, it's a, it's a great portion of Scripture I'm about to read, but let me give you a little backdrop to it. Paul is writing from the inner prison in Rome where he has been accused by Nero of setting the city on fire. Not only is Nero a narcissist, he's also an arsonist. He's, he's both. And and this guy was so self-absorbed and so self-centered in his leadership that he wanted a portion of Rome demolished so that he could build his his dream home. And this dream home was going to be on 300 acres. But the problem was it was occupied. It was occupied by Jewish people. And so uh, he he. uh, he was one, he was the one in authority and, and he couldn't, you know, annex that property into, into, into Rome's domain. It belonged to the Jewish people. So what he did was he came up with a plan of, of, I'm, I'm going, not myself personally, but I'm going to hire a henchman. I, I'm going to, I'm going to set the city on fire. And, uh, in order for me to, to have the land that I want, to build the dream home that I want, uh, to rule and reign in a way that, that I am, am known as one of the greatest leaders in history. So he hired this guy who went and started a fire. And, of course, Rome burned for many, many, many days. And that portion of the city was completely destroyed. But here's the problem is that there were so many people that were sympathetic to those that lost all of their personal items and their belongings that they actually asked the government to rebuild that. And that, that's not hard for us to fathom, is it? If you, if you ever have been around someone who's, who's completely devastated and emotionally drained because everything that they loved and, and possessed and had worked for is gone in a puff of smoke, you would empathize with them and you would make an appeal, I would hope, to those that were in positions of authority. We need to do something to make this wrong right. We need to send some resources there. We need to send some money there. And, and, uh, and so what, what Nero did was the plan backfired. Most selfish plans backfire. And this backfired on him. So he came up with plan B, and that is, well, 
since that one didn't work all, what I'll do is I will, I will set it up in a, in a scenario to where Paul will be blamed and he will be held accountable and responsible for starting the fire. And so he said to those that were in the region, I want you to begin to propagate and tell this story among the people that this fire was actually started by one of your own. One of your own people started this fire. And and it was successful. People bought into it. And as a result of that, Paul was arrested and put in prison. So he's got legitimate concerns about his own safety, about his own well-being, about his own future. Uh, he's being falsely accused, and now he's, he's in prison, and not just any portion of the prison, but the innermost portion of the prison, and it's the worst of the worst. There's no daylight, no natural light, and, uh, you know, it's where the city's sewage actually passes by. And, and so it's a very unsanitary, very unhealthy it's not a place that you go to hotels.com and want to check in at. It, it's, it's a place you would avoid. It, it wouldn't have any stars on its rating. It would, it would have negative stars if you were to look it up. You never want to stay here. You don't want to be here. And so Paul, facing his own perils and, and his suffering for something that he never did, but because he is such a strong spokesman for the faith, Nero goes after him. But it was really Satan working through an ungodly man to try to take down a godly man. That's the scene behind the scene is that Satan was trying to use Nero to silence the witness of Paul because he was having such success and seeing such fruit and seeing so many people converted to Christ and churches being established and people being baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit that this whole plan was not the plan of man, but it was the plan of a very evil spirit, a very evil spirit. And so now that, that Paul is here, he's writing to his son in the faith. He's writing to Timothy. Now, where's Timothy? Timothy, at the time of this writing, is pastoring in Ephesus. Ephesus is, is a, a prestigious city. It's uh, one of the great seven cities in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and this church is in a season of unprecedented growth and they're seeing thousands of people come to faith in Christ and turning away from the world and the ways of the world and they're clinging and holding on to faith in Jesus Christ. So, so Timothy is a very, what we would say, prominent pastor in the city of Ephesus and, and people look to him and respect him and, and, uh, and therefore, he has great impact and great influence in amongst those people. And here's the situation, though. Now that Nero is going after and has gone after the Apostle Paul, he begins to make a list of other ministers that he wants to silence because anybody who is drawing people away from the allegiance of Caesar becomes a threat to Nero. And as a result of that, he wants everyone's allegiance. So now he's going to begin to amp up the persecution in the city of Ephesus. We read about it in the book of Acts that there's either one of two things going on in Ephesus. There's either a riot going on 
or there's a revival. And, and many times they were coinciding at the same time that there were multitudes of people that were into the occult and into black magic and into witchcraft, and they would take their books once they came to Christ, and they, they made a big burn pile in the, in the city square and, and burned all of their former instructions and ways of living and, and philosophies and beliefs. And they were making a public declaration that we're going to follow Jesus Christ, that we're done with the old and we're going to welcome in this new life. Now, if you follow this storyline far enough, what you begin to uncover historically is that up until this time in history, the church believers have never experienced governmental or societal persecution. They had had persecution from religious authorities, but never from the government and never from society at whole. So now, now, since Satan couldn't accomplish his purpose through religion and the traditions of the people, now what he was going to do was he was going to begin to try to bring a stop or a halt to the work of God by putting pressure on them through government legislation and through societal pressure. This is where it all begins. This is the setting in which this letter is written, and Paul wants to admonish his son in the faith. The persecution had begun to amp up so fast and furious in the city of Ephesus that this Congregation, which was at one time over 30,000 people. That's a lot of people. Over 30,000 people. This congregation began to shrink quickly because of persecution. And real persecution. Not fictitious persecution. Not someone, you know, just unliking, unfriending you on social media. This was a kind of persecution that, that created tormenting thoughts and paralyzed the people of Ephesus. This, these, these measures in which the government and society was coming after the Christians was more than just a concern. It was a fear. And this fear had begun to develop a root system into this church. And as a result of that, multitudes and multitudes of people were departing from the faith. They were saying, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't ask for this. All I wanted was, you know, pie in the sky. I wanted heaven as my home one day. I, I wanted freedom from condemnation. I, I wanted, you know, to, to make sure that, that I was forgiven. But I didn't sign up and, and put my name on any dotted line that I would risk my life for the faith. And we understand that, that this was a fledgling church. It was a young church. Uh, this was the first century church. And, and so they could go back quite easily to, to the ways of their fathers. They, they could go back into society and, and not, you know, identify with Christians at all. And many of them were actually taking those paths, denying the faith, departing from the faith. And, and it had impacted the church in such a way that even Timothy's strongest leaders we're leaving the church and saying, we're going to go somewhere else. We're going to do something else. 
selling used chariot parts sounds a lot more appealing than this persecution. There were three types of fear that we'll identify here in a minute that was going on. But let's take our text now. Second Timothy chapter one and verse three. Paul says, I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did as without ceasing. I remember you in my prayers night and day. You know where Paul is and hear the language. He said, I'm thankful for you. I haven't done anything to violate my conscience. I know rumors are flying around that that I'm an arsonist. Uh, I'm not. I didn't start a fire. My conscience will bear witness of this. I'm in prison and that's reality. But I'm thankful for you. I appreciate you. I'm grateful for you. Now, the one that maybe needs to be encouraged is encouraging the one that may, you know, uh, needs to be encouraging his spiritual father. Paul was in a much more precarious position than Timothy was. Even though Timothy's name was on the wanted poster by the government and he was sort of being scourged by society, he, he was not in prison, especially this prison. And so he still had liberties and freedoms. He still had, you know, the ability to come and go and to do what he needed to do. But he was being hindered, even though he wasn't in a physical prison, he was in a spiritual and emotional prison. He was locked in and locked down because of fear. And Paul is trying to get him out of this place emotionally and spiritually. And he's saying really to him, hey, I've got some things I need to say to you in light of what's going on, not only with you, but with me. And he continues and he says, I'm praying for you night and day. Um, if you're ever incarcerated, you'll probably start a prayer ministry. And, and it says in verse four, greatly desiring to see you being mindful of your tears. Would you would you if you don't have that phrase circled, it's it's Paul is so sensitive and so sympathetic towards Timothy that he says, I know what you're going through is bringing you to the place that you're 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 crying, you're weeping. And the word tears here is it means outburst of emotions. I know that people are leaving, they're de- departing from the church, your your key staff and leaders that that you were all committed to serving and, and helping to disciple. These believers are going back to the way of the world. They're spinning it, they're justifying it. You know, I know that it's bringing you to your knees and I'm praying for you. I know that it's affected you and you're you're shedding tears. He goes on and he says this. He says that I may be filled with joy. Verse five. How are you going to be filled with joy when I call to remembrance? And he's also calling to Timothy's remembrance, the genuine faith that is in you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. Therefore, I remind you, this is the second time he's using the past to help him with the present. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. The stirring up of that gift is because there's genuine faith, bonafide faith, real faith, sincere faith that dwells in the heart of Timothy But it's lying dormant. It's like the chocolate at the bottom of the milk. It needs stirred up in order for all of the contents to turn chocolatey. It's lying dormant. What's keeping it held down? What's keeping it suppressed? Fear. What's what's keeping him 
from being stirred to love and to good works? What's keeping him in this position? Fear, real fears. Not make-believe fears. Real things that he's facing. Real consequences for his choices for Christ. Not just hearsay and not just rumors. Verse 7. Let's go to verse 6. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Verse 7. For God has not, nor is he capable. It's not within the realm of possibility. God has not. He's not even capable. It's not even in the realm of possibility. God has not given us, you and I. He's in it with him. He's not separate from the suffering. He's suffering because of the common faith that they have. And, and when you and, and, and I suffer for the common faith that we have, it's an, um, important for us to remind ourselves there's other suffering also, lest we become delusional. And believe that we're the only ones, or no one understands, or no one can identify, or no one would even begin to, to you know, equate the pain that I'm in it's it's unimaginable. No no one no one's ever gone through what I've gone through. And what Paul is doing is saying, no no, hey Timothy, uh, I, I'm very aware of what's happening. And God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. Verse eight. Therefore, because of all of this, do not be ashamed. Notice where fear takes a person, takes them to a place of shame. He's saying, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, regardless of what's going on, regardless of what attendance looks like, regardless of, of what people are doing. Don't you ever let shame determine your decisions. Don't you, don't you let fear get a grip on you to the place that you ever, you know, would back away from the true, genuine faith that is in you. Because it's there. It resides in you. You may have to stir it up, but it's there. And I'm reminding you that I'm in this with you. God hasn't given me a spirit of fear either. The power, the love, the soundness, and the discipline that I need in my mind, God is the provider of that. He's not the author of fear. He is the father of faith. And that faith that's in you is going to help you to get free from this fear that is coming from the outside trying to suppress you and keep you down. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings, share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. He's reminding him of, of that consecrated call that he's committed himself to. It's holy. It's something that is eternal. Keep pursuing that. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. This call that you have, Timothy, is so sacred and so holy, you can't take any credit for it. It's something that God predetermined before you were even born. And so it is with all of us. The calling, the gifts, the grace, it's all according to his purposes. It's not anything that we could take credit for. 
It's not anything that we could earn through our works. Verse 10. He says, now this, this grace and this gift that has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He's reminding him of the bigger picture. He said, remember your Savior and why he came. He came to destroy death, every aspect of death, and to abolish it, completely eliminate it, to put it in a place and in a position doesn't, doesn't grip and determine your quality of life or your decisions regardless of your circumstances. Remember Jesus' resurrection, that he triumphed over death. He is victorious over death. And so are you. And I might be writing to you from the worst hotel in history, and you might be receiving this word of instruction in the worst time of your ministry, but I want you to know the power of God is available to you. The power of God is available to you because God has not abandoned us. He's incapable of giving us anything other than what we need to succeed. He is the one who is called and graced and anointed us, and it's according to his good pleasure. So don't let the outward pressure and circumstances determine your directives and decisions. I think this is a message that people in America better heed and really take to heart because while we have brothers and sisters in other parts of the world to gather like this would risk everything that they have and they gather anyway. We are not under that kind of scrutiny. While we have people that say things, very few people are going about doing much about what they say when it comes to persecution. And if a little resistance and a little pushback from the government and society. And when I say very little, it's the category that I intentionally use those words by. Causes us to flee from the faith, to forsake the faith, to depart from the faith. I have to question, and so would you, were we ever established in the faith? Was there ever genuine and sincere and heartfelt faith in us? Was there ever a commitment to Christ and His kingdom? Regardless of what comes, have we... Have we Surrendered all to follow Jesus. And, and surrendering is an ongoing uh, word in Scripture that means I surrender and continually surrender. I submit, continually submit. I, I sign up, I continually sign up. I, I show up, I continually show up. It's not just in, I'm not a fair weather believer. I, I'm not going to let society determine my values or, or my directives or my decisions. I have surrendered and continue to surrender to Christ. I submit and continue to submit to Christ. I yield and continue to yield to Christ. I, I serve and continue to serve Christ. Because eternity is real. And I'm living for eternity. I, I'm not living for the temporal. I'm not living for the momentary applause of man or the trophies or the accolades that they could give unto me that I could erect my own idols and put them on a shelf and say, look at all the great things that I have done. The Apostle Paul said, I count all of that as a waste except for the glory and the goodness and the purpose of God in my life. Can I get an amen? Amen. So I'm going to encourage you as I'm about to finish here that you've got to get a root system in your life spiritually because the winds are going to howl and going to blow. 
I don't know when and where, but there's a storm a coming. It's brewing. You know, before a storm ever appears, you can see it on the horizons where we live and where I grew up, especially where I grew up in the plains of Kansas. I mean, you could see it coming off the Colorado Rocky. I mean, you could see it building across the plains. Hours before it ever hit where I lived, you could see wall clouds beginning to form. You could see, you know, all of the all the earmarks. I, I've been in in three tornadoes and two hurricanes and one earthquake in my life. And 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 it, it wasn't like it just, you know, uh, happened without a lot of the uh, the conditions being primed for it. The perfect storm happens because all of the elements in the environment begin to align themselves in a way that it manifests, whether it's an earthquake, whether it's a hurricane, whether it's a tornado. And we have to be ready. We have to be ready for these real storms that are coming. And we have to be those that are persuaded that following Jesus and living for him is the greatest life that we could ever live. Even if it cost us our own life, our life is not our own. Our life has been hidden with God in Christ. Hidden with God in Christ. Eternity is what we're living for. Eternal rewards. This is, this is a, a truth that I think when you understand the message of Scripture is one that we need to get back to. In verse 11, he says, To which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher to the Gentiles. Verse 12, and for this reason, and for this reason alone, and it's a sufficient reason, I also suffer these things. I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3 through 12, we're very acquainted with verse 7, but when you understand the backdrop, it becomes a much richer and fuller portion of Scripture. So here are some things I, for note takers that I, I want you to consider writing down. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, to, through, 3 through 12. When Paul is writing to his son and in the faith, writing to the church, writing to us as New Testament believers, there's no, no condemnation. There's not one ounce. You, you can't show me one shred of evidence where there's any condemnation in this, in this letter. It's truth. There's no embellishing a story. There's no, no fabricating. There's no, no, you know, expanding beyond the truth. It's just, it's heartfelt. It's sincere. It's truthful, it's understandable, but there's no guilt associated with this. He's not shaming this congregation. He's not shaming Timothy as a pastor. He's trying to support him as a pastor. First point, when people are struggling with fear, they need support. Because it's altered their thinking. They've come to wrong conclusions. They, they've, they've run a scenario out in their mind and the end is 
always devastating. They need support. This is what the Apostle Paul is doing. He's supporting them. The second thing I see here that's so applicable and important if we're going to help to be free from fear and help others is he's reminding Timothy of those in his family that have genuine faith. What he's saying is you've, you've never experienced this, but your grandmother has and your mother has, and you know it because you're a part of their life. Every generation experiences persecution and If you're a young Christian or you've recently come to faith in Christ and maybe you've never experienced that, then you will at some point in time. But God will prepare you for that and and God will preserve you in the midst of that persecution. And in the midst of that persecution, God will be with you and will help you. But to say that we're not going to face it just isn't reality. And whether it's from religious establishments, whether it's from the government, whether it's from society. What he was saying is that hey, you've seen you've seen the difference that genuine and sincere faith has made because your grandmother and your mother held on to it. And that's what I want you to do. I want you to stir it up. I want you to hold on to it. Don't let it go. Don't depart. Don't go some other path. Don't go some other way. The path you're on is the right path. Persecution is part of the path. The third aspect of this teaching that's so important is that people have to understand that fear is not just an emotional component in our life, even though it does impact our uh, emotions. The origin of fear is a spirit. The origin of fear is a spirit. And that's why he was saying, you have a different spirit. You don't have a spirit of fear. You have a spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. The power of God rests upon you when fear tries to show up. Love shows up because love cast out fear. You have a sound mind. You don't have to come to irrational conclusions. How many of you know irrational conclusions are irrational? They say that 80% of the people that, that are, are, are uh, habitual worriers or struggle with anxiety, most of the things that they're concerned about aren't even in the realm of possibilities. Like walking out of church today and walking across the street and being hit by a semi. You know the mathematical probabilities of that? They're not very high. But you know there's people that won't cross the street, no pun intended, but won't take a step in a new direction, won't apply for a new job, won't continue to get educated, won't do something new in their life because they're going to be, you know, metaphorically hit by a truck and they can't succeed. The possibilities of that are minute. What happens if you did fill out the application for a new job? What if you did achieve and get some more education and work towards a better position in your workplace? You you actually are going to make yourself quite attractive. The world today and society today rewards people that are doing things, not those that are analyzing things. And coming to wrong conclusions. Yeah, 80%, 80%, Paul, can you believe that? 80% of the things that people keep them up at night aren't even in the realm of possibilities. That's irrational. That's a spirit tormenting someone, buffeting them, harassing them. They, they, They can't even close their eyes at night 
this reel is running through their mind. Reel of the worst end of any situation. Whether it's their health, their finances, their marriage, their kids, their workplace, their neighbors. Any in every scenario that the devil can leverage, he will leverage. He is that cruel. That's why it identifies fear as a spirit. God didn't give you a spirit, spirit of fear. It's a spiritual battle, not, not a battle against flesh and blood. So it helps us to help those when those people are dealing with fear. We need to, to tell them, hey, 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 you tell that spirit, stop in Jesus' name. That's the power. The power is in the name of Jesus. Use the name of Jesus. Say, that's far enough. Stop in Jesus' name. You'll not occupy my mind. I'm not going to meditate or think on you. I'm not going to come to irrational places. I'm going to believe in the power of God. I'm going to believe in the love of God. And God has given me a sound mind. He instructs Timothy. Number four, to not permit shame to drive his decisions. I spoke of that a little bit ago. But that's one of the indicators that fear is working is people are ashamed. And wherever there's shame, you know what people do with their shame? You ready? They cover it up. Because they're so ashamed of being ashamed, they don't want anyone to know they're ashamed, so they cover it up. They can't admit it. Fear won't let them permit it. It's tormenting them. There's no shame to those that are in Christ. There's grace. There's forgiveness. There's no past that you have with God. You're a new creature. You're a new creature in Christ. Old things are passed away. There's no shame. God will never use shame to try to get you motivated to do something good. No, he uses everything that's healthy and everything that is beneficial to you to get you out of that place of shame. He reminds you of all the good things that he's done for you and all the ways that he has supported you. And he is that good. And the fifth and the final thing is this. He's telling Timothy, he's telling us, when you suffer, and you will, and I will, believe and commit yourself to the Lord. Keep believing. Our life has been likened to a letter or a book read and known of all men. Scripture even talks about our Savior as the author and the finisher of our faith. I love those those analogies. What what is communicating to us so that you can understand this is this chapter of your life isn't one that you're writing. He's writing. And there's another chapter that's going to follow. Let the author keep writing. Don't take away the pen from the author and the finisher of your faith. Give the pen back to him and say, Father, keep writing. I'm staying committed. Even though I, I'm in the midst of this suffering and I feel the pressure of it, I'm staying connected to Christ. I'm staying committed to him. And here's the big finish. You want to know how to be free from fear? It's a real simple process. It's not difficult. You don't have to beg God. You don't have to plead. You don't have to be perfect. It's not through your works. But this is how freedom comes if fear is trying 
to lock you down and to keep you from moving forward. You have to know the truth. You have to love the truth. You have to speak the truth. And that's how you get free from fear. You've got to know the truth. In the world that we live in, truth is not subjective. Truth is absolute. You've got to know the truth. Number two, you have to love that truth. You have to embrace it like you would embrace a hot dog at a Dodger game. You've got to love that truth. You've got to love it to where it is the compelling desire of your heart. You love that truth. I love the truth. Not only do I invest in my life to know the truth, I love this truth because this truth produces freedom. Jesus said you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And the third thing that you have to do, and this is one that we need to get better at, we need to speak the truth. We need to, we need to be proclaimers of the truth, speaking the truth, always in love, but never in a, in a position or a posture of shame. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation to the Jew and also to the Greek. I, I'm not ashamed. Fear endeavors to bring shame. Shame always causes us to isolate and cover. The spirit of power, love, and sound mind causes us to open up, to trust, to believe, to commit, to consecrate, and to keep going forward, knowing that our life is not our own. We were bought at a price. We were bought at a price. Remember that. The precious blood of Jesus. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope that it encouraged or inspired you to God's best. If you have any questions about today's message, need prayer, or would like to learn more about Living Word Fellowship, please call 641-828-7119 or visit us at lwfknoxville.com.